in them. The fact that they're not written to the angel of the church of Lane Free Church uh, is no excuse. Uh, these are written to seven representative churches. They're real churches. Uh, the, what is said of them was true for their uh, attitudes and their hearts and their lives. Uh, but in choosing them and in sending their letters, God's intent was uh, that they would apply and be applied to each and every true church of his down through the centuries. So let's first just put it in context. Smyrna, and uh, we've got a couple of graphics behind to help us with it. Uh, that Geographically, that's, that's where it is. It's known where it is today. It's, uh, it's a real place. You can go there. You can visit it. Uh, it's on the west coast of Asia Minor, Turkey. Uh, it sort of rivaled Ephesus as the sort of first city of that area. It was a very successful, very great city. Uh, there's, uh, you can see the, popu- the fortifications of the city. Uh, population was estimated or guesstimated as something in the region of 100,000. And the Agora built in the 2nd century AD uh, is still, the remains of it still there with an altar to Zeus in the centre. Uh, some of the uh, architecture, some of the structures and uh, materials found there. So it's a very real place. People have been there, they've excavated it. The archaeology from that is still available for us to behold. And Jesus dictates his letter to John to be sent to the believers there in that city. I want us to start in verse 9. Today's poor rich church, like oxymorons, it's good, isn't it? Uh, this, this church is poor, but as Christ makes clear, it's rich. Uh, the trouble is, so often we see our poverty and not our riches, do we not? Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Church has been through a lot for Christ's sake. Uh, as indeed, of course, of the church at Ephesus that we looked at last time, that's made clear in the letter he sends to them. Persecution is already present and it's getting worse all of the time. They suffered real tribulation. The word translated tribulation, phlipsis, um, it, it means anguish, it means trouble, it means persecution. And that's what they've been suffering. And almost certainly they've been suffering it for Christ's sake. It's because they've identified themselves with Christ. They've not been ashamed of him. They've stood up in their culture, in their community, uh, in a place where there's all this foreign worship, all these pagan gods, and they've said, we believe in Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our Saviour. He is our King. We stand him. And they've suffered for it. And he immediately goes on to speak about one thing, their poverty. And I suggest to you that that is because the two are linked. Their poverty almost certainly comes about because they've identified with Christ, because they've stood with Christ. Now, Christians generally are not the richest people in the world to start with, are they? God doesn't choose many from the rich, Scripture says. He he chooses, he picks out, generally speaking, from amongst the poorer. There's not many who, by the world's standards, are wealthy that become Christians. There are some. But I think here it's even more than that. He's saying, as you've identified with Christ, you've suffered for it, both in persecution and in deprivation. They've probably lost jobs. Probably lost family. Probably lost the esteem and the stature they had in society. And they are now poor. 
And when you use the word poverty, you don't just mean that they're sort of average income, do you? You mean they're in the very lowest echelons of society. They are suffering real poverty. And what must have made it so much harder is that this persecution is not coming from the Romans, not coming from the occupying forces, which they might have expected. After all, the Romans have crucified Christ. No, it's coming directly from the Jews. It's coming from their own nationality, from the peoples that they've grown up amongst, the people who, previous to them siding with Christ, were their friends. The slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Christ says, I won't even identify them as Jews because they're actually anti-God by the very fact that they're persecuting my church. Jewish social life, of course, centred around the temple. The religious life was the very heart of the community. It was very precious to the community. And these people, in siding with Christ, stepped out of that. They they said, "We, we no longer... Uh, identify as, as Old Testament Jews but we see ourselves now as the church of Jesus Christ and in doing that they were put out of the temples they were, they were excommunicated from the, the very centre and heart of the community in which they'd grown up they were poor indeed but and it's a massive but They were not poor in Christ's sight. Christ can add as an addendum to it, but you are rich. Every word spoken against them for the sake of Christ has been laying up for them treasures in heaven. Every time they've been rejected for his sake, he is going to reward them for it. Every word that's been said against them, every action that's been taken against them, every rejection that's been made of them, it is laying up treasure upon treasure upon treasure for them in glory. And Christ says, do you not understand how rich you are? And look at all you have in me. You might be poor in the physical realm, but look where you stand in the spiritual realm. My friend, how do you see wealth and success? It's so easy for us to see it in the world's terms, isn't it? How much money you make, how far you're progressing up your career structure, how popular you are in society, how many friends you rank on Facebook. That's the way the world measures success. That's the way the world measures wealth, isn't it? How much have I got in the bank? What sort of holiday can I afford this year? What sort of car can I park outside my house for everyone to admire? Is that how you see wealth and success? Because if you do, you're going to consider yourself very poor indeed if you're a committed Christian. But if you see it as Christ sees it, what are all of those things compared with being in Christ? What are all those things in a few years' time when you drop dead and they will go to somebody else? Jesus put it like this, Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you see the reasons he's given us, the motivations he's given to us there? First of all, that treasure cannot 
diminish. It cannot tarnish. It cannot wear out. I mean, friends, you go out and buy the best car available on the market today, the most expensive car, the, the, the most awesome car. And, and where is it going to be in 20 years' time? It's going to be on a scrap heap or it's going to be in a museum doing nothing. You know, you cannot take a car and drive it on the roads day in, day out and without it diminishing and rusting and wearing out. But Christ says, that's not how it is with the treasure that I store up in heaven for you. He says, when you get there, that will still be perfect. And in a million years' time, it will still be perfect. He says, that's where you need to lay up your treasure for that reason. (coughs) But he says, let me give you another reason why as well. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And if your treasure is in your possessions on earth, that's where your heart's going to be. You're going to be earthbound in your thinking. You're going to be earthbound in your affections. You're going to be earthbound in your agendas. You're going to be earthbound in your goals. Because if your treasures are on earth, all you're going to be concerned about is that little pot of treasure. But he says if your treasures are up in heaven and you're constantly thinking about how they're building up up there, your heart's going to be there. You're going to be thinking about heaven. You're going to be longing for heaven. You're going to be looking forward to heaven. When when the day approaches, when you drop dead, you're going to be saying, come on, Jesus is coming for me soon. I'm going to go to be with him. I'm going to receive the treasure that I've been longing for and waiting for and building up. And that's not a bad thing to think like that. That's a biblical way of thinking. My friend, where is your treasure? Now what should leap out at us in terms of the position of this letter in the seven letters is the fact that it's just the second one is coming immediately after the one to the church at Ephesus and the one at the church at Ephesus had got it so wrong, hadn't they? They had the same sort of background as the church at Smyrna. They've been persecuted. They too have stood up and identified with Christ but they've lost their love of Christ. Somewhere in all of this pressure and all this tribulation and, and all their work programs and all their activity they've just ended up doing it as duty. They're no longer in love with Christ as they were when they started. And now against that, the second letter is set, and in here Jesus doesn't have a single word of criticism for the church. Christ has got nothing but nothing to say against them. Isn't that amazing? It it almost begs to ask the question, doesn't it? Is it possible to live in such a way that Christ has got nothing to say against you? I, I, I mean, they're not sinless, obviously. We're all sinners. So how can it be that Christ hasn't got anything to say against them? Surely he should be saying, well, you know, th- there are those issues in your holiness that you need to still address. That There are some discipline issues there that you need to look at. I mean, they're not perfect, so why hasn't he got a single word to say against them here? Well, the answer surely is this. They're not covering anything up. They're not hiding anything. There isn't anything that's wrong that they're not seeking to address and put right. They're already trying to do everything right, and so Christ hasn't got any criticism for them. All he's got is encouragement to press on with what they're doing. In that sense, we can be free of criticism from Christ. If our hearts are right and we recognise what's wrong and we're trying to address those things that are wrong and we're trying to live more holy lives and we're trying to press forward with the Lord, the Lord hasn't got criticism for us. 
He would only come and encourage us to do even more what we're doing. I think Paul gives us an indication of that, doesn't he? When he turns around and he says, amazingly, it seems, in Acts chapter 20, 26, Therefore I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says, as God knows me, I am innocent of all men's blood. How can he say that? He never preached the gospel to every single person in the area that he travelled on his journeys. He certainly didn't preach it as long as he could have done. He moved on and left them still unsaved. So how can he say, I'm totally innocent of the blood of all men? Because as God knows his heart, he preached boldly, he preached effectively, he preached without compromise, he told them the truth, he declared Christ openly. And so what they've done with it after that is on their heads. He has done what God left him there to do. And my friends, as long as we're doing that, there is no criticism from Christ for us. Now listen, this is a real possibility for us as a church tonight and us as individuals tonight that we Christ could say, let me tell you how I see you at the moment. I've got no criticism to make of you. That is a real possibility. He would go on to say, but I encourage you to do this even more. I would encourage you to continue sorting out that. But that's where we should be standing. That he says, I can't see any area that you're trying to persist in sin, any area where you're denying the reality, any area where you're refusing to speak of me. I've got no criticism, only encouragement to press on even harder. Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one. This is Jesus speaking. And he's talking in parable, but he's talking of what it will be for those who are in Christ, who have got it right. And he says this, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of the master. And he said that to the one who had been given a lot and he said it to the one who had been given less. It was only the one who had taken what he was given and buried it in the ground that Jesus had not encouraging words to say but criticism. My friend, let's be faithful to God in what he has given us and know that he does not delight in criticising us. All he would want to do is to encourage us to press on even harder and further for him. My friend, is that your goal tonight? That when you lay down your head to sleep tonight, it will be with the knowledge that Christ is not, has not got reason to criticise me. As best as I am able, dependent solely on his grace, depending entirely upon the work of Holy Spirit within me, I'm seeking to honour him in all of life. Well, that's the today's poor rich church, but my friends, it's going to change for them. Let's see tomorrow's persecuted church. Verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have (coughs) tribulation. (coughs) In other words, Jesus says to them, let me tell you something, church. It's been hard up to now, hasn't it? You've really been going through it. I've, I've got a message for you. Guess what? 
tomorrow it's going to get harder. However hard you think it's been thus far, it's going to get miles harder in the days to come. Don't you just love the fact that God does not paint pie-in-the-sky pictures for us in Scripture? He doesn't paint pictures that are just meaningless words. He doesn't just say things to make us feel good, that have no substance, no reality in them. He paints it as it is. And he turns to this church and says, Church, you need to know this. You are about to suffer a whole lot more than you have done up until now. Listen to Jesus speaking to those who would follow him. John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You've got to follow me, folks. My call is for you to take up your crosses and follow me. And you want to know what it's going to be like? If you follow me, you're going to have tribulation. John 15, 19 to 20. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute you. Luke 6, 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Leap for joy because don't you understand that is going to put a whole more low big pile on your reward that's waiting for you in heaven. But you're going to suffer while you're here on earth. And here he lays it on this poverty-stricken, suffering church. You're about to suffer even more. But, he says, do not fear. That's the big problem, isn't it? As we think of the possibility of persecution in the coming days. As you go into your workplace tomorrow and the opportunity comes to speak of Christ and it's in your mind, do I say anything or don't I? What is the one concern that you have? Isn't it fear? How are they going to react? What's going to happen next? Am I going to get into trouble? Am I going to be ostracized? What is the implications? What is going to be the result on me because of this? Fear. And here Jesus turns around to them and says, it's going to get a whole lot worse. Some of you are going to die. Do not fear. And he gives them three reasons why they shouldn't fear it. My friends, listen to these reasons and just rejoice and apply them to whatever persecution you suffer in your workplace or your home or wherever it is. Here's number one. He, Christ, is alive and reigning. Verse 8 the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Christ reigns. Why should we fear what man can do to us when our king is king of kings and lord of lords and he's on the throne? I mean, isn't it nonsensical? I mean, these people who terrify us are but dust. And they are entirely dependent upon Christ for the breath that they breathe, for the life that they live, for their moment-by-moment -moment existence. And here's our Lord, here's our King, and he is reigning. So here's the first reason they shouldn't fear. Christ is alive. Here's the second one. 
God has got a good purpose in our suffering. Look at verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Here's where we have to straighten our theology, isn't it? Who is going to be responsible for this action against them? Satan. God is not the author of sin. God is not the author of evil. If, if evil is done against them, the instrument behind that is Satan. Satan is going to throw them into prison. But Satan cannot do anything except what God gives him permission to do. And God does not give him permission to do anything except God has got a good purpose in him doing it. In other words, if God says, yes, you can do that, it's because God wants that to happen because God has got a good purpose that he will do through it. And so God can say, Christ can say, Satan will throw you into prison that you may be tested. Now, who's going to test them? Satan. He's not interested in testing them. He's not interested in refining them. He's not interested in shaping them. It's Christ. In other words, God is saying, look, here's the first reason you shouldn't fear. I'm in control. I'm on the throne. And he says, the second reason is this. I've got a good purpose in what's going to happen to you in the persecution that will come. It's going to challenge you to think about how much you love me. It's going to cause you to look at what you really value in this lifetime. It's going to cause you to weigh up those things that you've treasured up until now and that you're going to have to risk losing for me and and really side with me and and, and throw those away from you. It's going to, to test your faith in me and and your confidence in me. It's going to grow you as my people. It's going to make you the people I want you to be. And then the third reason. It's not going to last for long. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Now as we said when we started this book. We're going to reach. We're going to keep coming across numbers in it. And um, generally speaking. Most of them we don't take literally as. Uh, in the way that they're written there. And I don't for one minute think it means here that this tribulation is just going to last for a week and a half. It means a short, defined period of time. It's not going to just go on and on and on and not have any end to it. It's going to be for a season. Now that season might be the rest of your life. He speaks here of unto death. And it might be for some of those believers as they receive this letter and through tribulations coming... It's not going to last that long. I wonder how long it would be. Well, it was long enough for them to die before they saw the end of it. But it's only for a season. And if we die under it, that's the end of our season of suffering. Because in that moment, our persecution ends. In that moment, our suffering ends. And in that moment, we go to be with Christ, which is better by far. Be faithful unto death. God is being brutally honest with us here, isn't he? I don't know where our land's going in the coming days. And sometimes I'm glad I'm the age I am that I'm probably not going to see the worst of it. But, you know, things can change in a very short space of time in our world, can't they? And for many of our brothers and sisters in the world today who might be sitting here reading these very scriptures, they're in the midst of it and they know exactly what it's about because they're going through this. And they're sitting there saying, we're in it up to our necks and and we've lost everything, we've had everything stripped away from us, we're as poor as we can possibly be. Are we going to fear? 
Christ is on the throne. Christ is alive and reigning. God's got a good purpose in this. He's making us more like Jesus every day that we suffer. And it's all going to be over soon. It's all going to be over soon. What is my lifetime going to be in a thousand years' time when I look back on it? What's it going to be in a million, billion, trillion years' time when I look back? It's going to be like that. It's going to be like a millisecond of time. And all this suffering that seems so impossible now, it's, it's just, it, we won't even remember it in the aeons of history, will we? Of eternity. But that's the future. Jesus said, Matthew ten twenty eight, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Look, he says, dear Christian, why are you worrying about someone who can kill you as long as you're right with the one who after death has control of you? That's what matters. That's the issue. And that's what he's going to come to here in this letter. The second death. That's the one that matters. Not whether or not someone kills you at the age of 40 or 50 or 60 or you drop dead in your bed at the age of 100. That doesn't matter. It's appointed unto man once to die. One way or another, you're going to die. Get over it. Move on. Luke 12:4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Jesus says, you know, these... these world out there that you're so frightened of you're so much in fear of the worst they can do to you is take your life which is the best thing that can happen to you if you're a Christian and after that there's nothing they can do outside of their power for eternity so see finally eternity's glorified church each of these letters is generally a link between how Jesus introduces himself at the start of it and then either the challenge he's going to bring to the church or the promise that he's going to bring to the church at the end. And this is where we see the link. Eternity's glorified church. Verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This letter is not just from a human author. This letter is from Christ himself. Christ is speaking and he's saying, look, I'm the one who's speaking to you and I've lived and died, but I've come out the other side victorious. I now live forevermore. And so here is the promise to this poor, suffering church. This church that's in a bad place now and is going to be in a far worse place tomorrow. Here's the promise, and he gives it twice over. Verse 10b, I will give you the crown of life. Did you notice the paradox there in verse 10? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful to die, and I will give you life. Seems so wrong, doesn't it? The world says, no, I've got to hang on to life because that's all I've got. I mean, I mean this is life. And Jesus says, no, it's not. This is dying. This isn't what living's about. This is what dying's about. And if you try to hold on to this, you've got it all wrong. Let go of this dying life and I will give you real life. I will give you eternal life. Remember how Jesus spoke in John twelve twenty five: whoever loses his whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
My friends, where's your treasure? If your treasure's in this world, your heart's in this world, and your focus is on this life, and you'll do anything and everything to keep hold of this life. And Jesus says, that's not the way you gain eternal life. The way you gain eternal life is to build up your treasure in heaven and then your heart is in heaven and then you don't want to hang on to this life. You want that life where your treasure is, where your reward is, where I am. And I will give you eternal life. But it's more than that, isn't it? He doesn't say, I will give you life. He says, I will give you the crown of life. This is the victory. This is the one who has gone through death, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, who reigns over the cosmos, and he says, and if you serve me well, when you go through death, I will give to you a crown as well. You will reign with me. You will share in my victory. James says the same thing, doesn't he? James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, exactly the same thing. Stand with Christ under trial, and God will give you the crown of life. My friends, what a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? When we go back out there tomorrow into the world, when we're toying, do I speak for Christ or don't I? When that opportunity arises and in that millisecond Satan tries to keep us dumb and we know we should speak, Christ would say, stand with me under trial. I'll give you the crown of life and I will have such a reward waiting in heaven for you. What a promise, what a prospect. And then we get the promise repeated in verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This crown of life, this eternal life will protect us and keep us and take us through the second death we know what the second death is that is the judgment and the those who are outside of Christ being cast into eternal hell and he says that is man's lot is appointed unto man once to die and then judgment and at judgment all hearts will be laid bare at judgment all sin will be exposed at judgment every sin will have to be accounted for and paid for but he says If you are mine, then that is covered. If you are mine, then that has been paid for. If you are mine, then you are justified. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that second death will not touch you. Oh, my friend, if that doesn't thrill your heart, I don't know what will. The thought that you have got to die, that is appointed to everyone. And when you die, your next event of significance is that you've got to stand before God in judgment. The knowledge that the second death cannot touch you has got to be the greatest source of joy and peace that I know. And Jesus says, that's my gift for you. Now, the amazing thing here, of course, is that he's not only saying this to the church at Smyrna. What does he say? Verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, this is for anyone and everyone who will take heed to my word and obey it. And we've already been challenged back at the start of the book, at the start of chapter 1, that blessed is the one who hears and takes to heart what is written in this book. So where do we stand tonight? 
Where do we stand as individuals? Where do we stand as a church? We might be poor. We're poor as a church. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had 200 people here tonight? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had all the resources that we could be so much more effective in evangelism in the towns and villages round about, if we had the resources that we could do television, national broadcasts, preaching the gospel. I, I mean, you know, you can dream, can't you, what we could do if we had, if we were so much richer. It's not what it's about. It's about where we are with Christ. It's about whether we're loyal to him. It's about whether we honour him. It's about whether we're living holy lives. It's about whether we're identifying with Christ out there in the world where they've rejected him and when they blaspheme his name. That's how we're rich. And how are we doing as individuals? How is it with you tonight? If you're a Christian... Are you looking on the negative side, just how poor you are? Or do you see how rich you are in Christ? Are you in fear of the future or are you confident because Jesus reigns? He's alive and reigning. God has got a good purpose in everything that comes into your life. He will work together all things for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purpose. All things. And it won't last forever. A day is coming when you can say right now, just as Job said in the midst of all his horrific suffering, I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end I will see him. Though my flesh be destroyed, I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. That's Christ's letter to the church at Smyrna. We're going to sing together number 42, Be Thou My Vision.